That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. My name is Ryan Harris, champion Super Bowl 50, and my dilemma is balancing ambition with appreciation. It sounds like a deep thought by Jack Handy when I first hear it, but I think I actually get what you're saying. I think if I'm hearing you right, it's about wanting to be ambitious enough to pursue whatever the next thing is, but also being grateful and present in the moment and appreciating what you already have. And interestingly enough, I have a colleague uh, at ESPN and um, was successful guy. We met actually when we both were working for small time blogs and got jobs at ESPN around the same time. And my natural way of being is so grateful that at every turn I would think, oh, my God, I can't believe just two years ago I was doing X or Y and now I work for ESPN. Just five years ago I was doing this and that and now I've got my own show or whatever it is. And at every turn I sort of was able to very naturally be grateful for the things that I had achieved, be able to look back at the times when what I was doing now was what I could never have even dreamed of. While also, of course, wanting to take the next step and looking ahead to what, you know, my career path might be going forward. Whereas he was constantly the opposite. No matter what he had achieved and how far he had come, it was about the next thing and worrying regularly about whether that next thing would come. And I would constantly tell him that you will never appreciate the place that you're in if you are always looking for what's next. So it's great to be ambitious. But gratitude, and I talk about this all the time on my podcast, is so important to being happy in the present moment. So being able to be grateful for the things you've already achieved and that you're currently doing is actually far more important to your happiness than ambition about some other thing that you think is going to bring you the happiness that it actually won't. Because the studies all show having more money, getting better grades, getting a better job, getting a promotion – and the moment that it happens, it makes you very happy. But over the course of your lifetime, usually that's not actually what determines people's happiness. So that ambition that you feel is probably healthy and better for you actually could be making you less satisfied in your everyday life. So that seeking of the balance is actually really great, Ryan, that you want that. Um but maybe do some reading on the importance of gratitude and the importance of being present. And that will help you sort of bring in that desire for whatever's next and instead be able to have a healthy ambition while mostly being grateful for the things you already have. The commish has spoken. My guest this week is Ryan Harris, a former NFL offensive tackle. He played for the Broncos, Eagles, Texans, Chiefs, and Steelers. Won Super Bowl 50 with the Broncos. Now he's an author, speaker, weekday radio host in Denver, radio broadcaster for Notre Dame football games, and he works the sidelines for some Westwood One Monday night football radio broadcast. This was an interesting conversation. One of the few Muslim players in the NFL talking about how he balanced the demands of his faith with the physical and mental demands of being on uh, on an NFL team. Also talked about being on the MTV show True Life, I Want the Perfect Body, back in the day. That was a great conversation. Um, and, and just the life of an NFL player, the ups and downs, the moments that he realized that he wasn't putting in the work that he should and had to kind of take take the, the truth, swallow the hard truth, that he would need to work his way back to a team and may have let down himself and his family. Um, so, yeah, a really interesting conversation. I think you guys will like it. Here's my interview with Ryan Harris. That's what she said. So great to have you on the podcast. There's so much to get to, um, what you're working on now and, and your NFL years. But, uh, as always on the pod, I want to start way back at the beginning. So tell me about little Ryan Harris. What were you like as a kid? 
Oh, man, just a geeky, chubby kid. You know, uh, I actually fell in love with football because I'd watch it after eating a Sunday meal at my grandmother's house. And, and then my grandfather had season tickets to the uh, to the NFL for the Vikes. And uh, and I got to see, and it was right in front of where the linemen warmed up. And I was like, oh, my God, there's big guys who play football, too. And, <laughs> and so uh, I, I started loving the sport in that way. And, uh, and the first day I got my pads, I was 14. Uh, in, in St. Paul, Minnesota, played at the same place Terrell Suggs and Joe Maurer played our preps uh, football at, and everybody was laughing at me because I didn't know how to hit. And then the very next day, <laughs> a little defensive back came running down the sidelines with a football and just leapt at him with everything I had, closed my eyes, and it turns out I knew how to hit. And that was kind of just the beginning, really, you know, of my life as, I, as I've begun to enjoy it um, since then. Did you know, like, I mean, sometimes boys don't grow up or, or really fill out until later. Did you know you were going to be a big guy? Was that part of you at that age already, even being able to point to, to linemen and saying that's probably what I'm doing? You know, I was so ashamed before football of being a big guy, you know, and I had glasses on and, like, my cheeks would come out over my underneath my glasses. Stuff, <laughs> you know, I was just a chubby kid who liked food, you know, and, and didn't really get a, a whole bunch of exercise, so... Um, so when I first played football, and, and I'll never forget my first prep coach, Coach Carter, said, Ryan, if you stay at this, you can be special. And for a big guy, I could protect a quarterback. I could create space for a running back. I could hurt somebody on defense. And these were all new and awesome feelings for me when I was a young kid. And in that way, football loved me first. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm curious when you were – like, what was that transition moment from not working out a lot, not really being into sports, just watching it, to deciding, okay, in eighth grade or whatever this is, I'm going to go step out on a field and try it. That's got to be a scary moment if you haven't put yourself out there before. Yeah, you know, but I wanted that. I wanted to know, you know, so much so much of my life and career, I want to know. I want to know, and then a lot of that comes from me being multiracial, uh, people seeing me as a threat or, or whatnot, and like, you know, I, I want to know if someone is a threat. I want to know if I can't play football. And then once it was, you know, feeling awesome and I could play football, well, now I want to take this as far as I can. And I love the, I love the game. You know, Amy Wambach had an awesome quote at the ESPN SB. She said, I didn't play soccer to be the best at soccer. I played soccer because I want to be great at it. And that is the definite type of mentality I had when I touched football. It's just I can use my size, I can use my strength, and I can have fun. Let's do this. Let's ride this baby till the wheels fall off. And uh, little did I know it'd be twenty years later till those literal wheels started falling off. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yes, yeah, so you're growing up in St. Paul, Minnesota. You played football. You wrestled. Um, besides sports, were you uh, were you a nerd? Were you really into classes? Did you have a lot of friends? Like, what was your sort of like? If someone at school would have described you, would they have just said, "Oh, that's Ryan. He's an athlete." You know, I, I'm not sure. You know, I, I did, uh, you know, I was, I, I, I definitely was always outside of the box in terms of what people thought. You know, I got into a verbal altercation with a teacher who called me, you know, at one point in the classroom. He said, don't, you don't have to worry about this, Ryan. You're just an athlete. And I lost my mind, you know, and uh, my mother's, a, you know, uh, an administrator in St. Paul Public Schools. My father's a retired engineer. So education was always big. And, you know, I don't know if anybody did know what to make of me growing up, but I had a great group of core friends. And, and the great thing was is we all had other things going on. You know, one of my buddies played baseball in college. Another one went to USC on a scholarship for academics. And, and the other went to the, um, to, the, to the Army in the ROTC program. So I just had great people around me that really helped me have fun. We watched BET Comic View for those people who remember, <laughs> you know what I mean? We just hung out, watched baseball games, and, 
and uh, and and so I was lucky in that regard. So I really didn't care what people thought, and uh, and I'm fortunate that that was my experience early, because that really served me well. Even in NFL teams, I was on later on. When you were playing in the NFL, you were about six five, three hundred. When you're back in high school, what what are you what are you in at? Yeah, you know, so I was two going into my senior year. I was two fifty five. I was wow. a I was a, uh, a chunky two fifty five, right? And uh, and that's actually how the uh, you know I ended up going uh, being selected for that MTV True Life show uh, because I had a producer call and say, "Hey, we're doing a show on positive weight gain. I'm a Notre Dame fan. They say you got to gain fifty pounds this summer. Can we follow you?" And I was <laughs> like, "Well, uh, sure." And uh, and end up showing up at, at training camp my r- freshman year, my rookie my freshman year at Notre Dame at 274 and that to me was like the biggest strongest I'd ever be and uh ended up playing at that weight and you know I got as big as 320 at times and uh but 300 is definitely the sweet spot and it's so funny some of the best tackles Anthony Munoz Tony Baselli, those guys weren't you know 315 320 those guys played and were quick and so I really modeled my game after them Todd Light who played for a long time with the Patriots and uh and I was really fortunate to and my idea would be that quick tackle, as they used to call the left tackle back in the day. Okay, let's go back to this MTV show, because I think a lot of people remember MTV True Life. Every episode was some different topic. It's, you know, True Life, I'm coming out, or True Life, I need to quit my OCD, or, you know, not quit it, but deal with my OCD. Um, True Life, I'm obsessed with being a Kardashian, right? There's a lot of different <laughs> things. And, and the one I remember specifically for some reason, is the guy who wanted calf implants, which was, yeah, was yeah. it the same episode as yours or just another one that was about wanting a specific body? Yeah, that was the same episode. And that's the thing that everybody, you know, uh, remembers it from. And it was funny to me. They didn't tell me. Like, I was so young, you know. I mean, Sarah, I was like 17. And an MTV producer calls me like, hey, I do this show called True Life. You heard of it? Uh, yeah. You know, you want to you see, got to gain weight, want to do the show, follow you around. Sound good? uh yeah all right here we go we'll call you back in a couple of weeks and so i didn't think anybody would see it you know and uh and then eventually for me luckily for me going into in my freshman year the title was i want the perfect body true life i want the perfect <laughs> body so you can imagine how those upperclassmen were looking yeah. for me as soon as i arrived and uh and the calf implant guy was on there i think his dad shaved his, his crack too that was a part of it and uh, <laughs> luckily those things overshadowed my small moments, but a lot of people uh, ended up did seeing it. and uh, But that was good for me. It was a good experience to teach me, hey, sometimes you're going to be recognized before you recognize other people, and that's a valuable lesson for athletes yeah. to learn, uh, especially going into college. Gosh, okay, so you do the MTV show, I, and I definitely remember. I think I was somehow watching it with my dad, the calf implants one, because we just were just confounded by this guy's need for them. And then, of course, Johnny Drama on Entourage wanted calf implants, I remember, too. That's a throwback. Yeah. But um, so you show up at Notre Dame. You got recruited by a bunch of places, Iowa, Miami, uh, Miami of Ohio, Michigan. You decide on Notre Dame. And like you said, you get there and you're just this this freshman kid, but people already recognize you. So what was was there hazing? Was there razzing? What was the response from them about, especially because you're a big guy and the show is the perfect body. So I can imagine some cornerbacks and other guys on the team were like, really, really, you, the perfect body. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I had never seen, like, college D1 athletes, you know what I mean, like six-packs eating the McDonald's before practice. So I had no idea about that world, right? But, uh, yeah, I mean, when I got there, they were pretty, you know, they were looking for me and uh, and wanted to make sure I knew my place. And, and for me, again, I didn't expect much. But then, you know, the funny thing at Notre Dame, you get on campus, it's the same way around the nation. 
you know, you get on campus early for, for training camp. So, you know, those guys, those seniors, hey, where's that MTV, you know, um, uh, yeah. expletive? And, and uh, <laughs> But then, you know, three weeks later, the ladies came on campus were like, hey, where's that MTV kid? And yeah, those same like, guys oh. were like, let me introduce you to my friend Ryan, you know? It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> We're friends now, you know, but fortunately for me, you know, the one thing I always took a pride in my entire career was being in shape. And I came into camp incredibly ready for anything physically they could throw at me. And uh, it wasn't, you know, in the fourth game of that season as a freshman, I became the third freshman at Notre Dame history to start at offensive line. And I mm-hmm. just earned the respect of my teammates from from not caring what they thought, from not accepting what they thought, how long they thought it would take me to play, and just did believing in myself and choosing my mindset and uh, really just started having a blast, you know, living the dream, playing football at Notre Dame. I mean, it was everything I went there to do. So let's talk about back in eighth grade, you converted to Muslim. You were raised in the uh, Unity Church, Unitarian, and yeah. Uh, I want to get to how that maybe affected or didn't affect your relationship with your teammates and going to a school like Notre Dame. But let's go back to eighth grade. So what, what inspired that decision? Was that something your family did or you personally? Yeah, that was me personally. You know, I got to give a lot of thanks to Unitarian Universalist um, Church in, in Minnesota. I mean, we kind of we went there. And for those who don't know, it's basically, hey, whatever you believe, come listen. You know, they'll give a sermon on love, and they'll include the Bible, the Torah, the Quran, but also, you know, quotes from Rumi or Buddha. And at 14, you're chosen to make a faith statement. And at 14, I was like, I don't know what the hell I believe, you know, and started looking (laughs) into it. And and I started reading about Buddhism. I read about Christianity, and I I read about Judaism. And, you know, I was asleep in the eighth grade social studies class, um, and I woke up, and they were just playing like this, you know, 10, 20-minute world religions video. And when I woke up, everything about Islam was being talked about, and it just felt like my heart was being unzipped as to what I could find, you know, belief in God, appreciation every day, you know, I mean, that's what the prayer five times a day is about, being thankful for family, being thankful for, you know, being able to breathe, being healthy, and uh, and still, you know, held great tradition around Abraham, Moses, Jesus, Mary, mother of Jesus, you know, so um, I really took a dive into it, and I bought a Teach Yourself Islam book at Barnes & Noble. Couldn't have been more wrong. It was like 90 pages, missed major parts of it, uh, but I did get the Allah chain from Piercing Pagoda, so I was Muslim, you know what I'm saying? And uh, yeah. and I rode through and, and learned, and, and actually going to Notre Dame made me become a better Muslim. You know, Notre Dame has over 330 masses per week on campus, so I was in a community that really highlighted faith and the importance of spirituality, and I grew, and, and I grew, and, and the Muslim Student Association there in, at, at Notre Dame is one of the largest or one of the longest running in the nation. And Notre Dame was the only school, not Miami, not Michigan, not Stanford, who took me to a mosque on my recruiting visit. So at Notre wow. Dame, I felt very welcome, even by my coaches. And uh, and that's led me to know how well we can work together despite our differences. You know, even in the NFL, 10 years in the NFL, I never had a teammate treat me poorly because I was Muslim. It was always questions or shared laughter or shared experiences. And that really gives me a firm knowledge that, of how good we can be to each other when we recognize each other's differences instead of trying to create them. What did your parents and your family think when you went to them and said, you know, I want to go in this other path? You know, my parents were so happy that I chose something. And if you think about it, you know, the things that we love, we chose ourselves, whether that be our significant other or a favorite color or a favorite music. So my parents were just happy that I came to my own conclusion. 
my grandfather, you know, he's an old, he's a patriarch black man, you know, so he's like, what do you mean, you ain't gonna eat no pork no more, you know, so for about a year and a half, he was trying to, he Did was he trying keep to, just, uh, just always would slide some bacon onto your plate, like, just see if you'd slip yeah. up? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, and he and, and he talk about it before he did it too. Well, I tell you, I made this, I made this sausage, this swine right here, so delicious. Ooh, I had to eat three of them before I put them on the plate. So here you go, Ryan. Hey, thanks, Papa. <laughs> you know, I ain't gonna, you know. So, um, but again, the people just respected in my family that that you know uh, I made a decision, and I really didn't know what I was doing. You know, being the only Muslim in my family for the first couple of years, and fortunately found some good people who gave me guidance and uh and today and just, you know it's been a part of my life and a part of my growth and a part of you know my sacrifice you know you go through ramadan you, you you learn how to sacrifice well okay now i'm sacrificing because we're going into the super bowl and you know i have no this isn't the first time i've had to sacrifice in my life and believing in something bigger than myself helped me be a better leader to my teammates and a better teammate and uh i'm so fortunate just to have just to have my personal clarity of, of ways I can give appreciation, and it's made a profound impact in my life and the life of those around me. Okay, so you're back at Notre Dame now, and I'd love to hear about this recruiting trip. Uh, did they know immediately that it was going to be meaningful and, and important to you to find a mosque to be shown that you'd be welcome at a Catholic school, um, or was that, you know, did you bring that up while you were walking around on campus? No, they. so that was one of the first things we did. And actually, at the time, there was a women's basketball assistant coach who was Muslim. So we went to this mosque, and they're like, hey, this is the nearest mosque to, to the campus. And it was like two miles or something. And, and then they took me to meet this teacher, and she said, hey, I love being here at Notre Dame. And so it was just like, whoa. And I didn't mention that, you know, but it was known that I was Muslim because, I'm, you know, I'm sure as you know, coaches try and learn everything about a kid to find a right. leverage point or a place where they can slip in a lie to get the kid to come there right but yeah my, my coach inexplicably very... knew to send me on a uh all-day adventure with a six foot five bald black dude that looked a lot like michael jordan it's like somehow yeah. he knew that that would make me want to go to cordell <laughs> yeah you know it's like it's fun you know the lies told and the, in, in the you know the ways they manipulate young kids right i mean it's it's funny to laugh at now, but I'm sure when you're walking around Cornell's campus, you're like, oh, my goodness, this is what all the guys look like. Yeah, I'm going to be coming <laughs> yeah. to Cornell. Everybody you know? looks like this, right? <laughs> yeah, you have no concept that, yeah, that they plucked the best out. But, yeah. you know, and it was, so it was just really genuine. And, and you could, you know, looking back, you could kind of feel like, hey, okay, this is kind of showy. Uh, but I didn't feel that at Notre Dame. And then I credit, too, you know, Charlie Weiss called me in one day. And I thought I was getting, you know, I, was, I didn't I didn't do anything wrong. But I was like, I don't know if I'm getting kicked off the team. I don't know what the hell's about to happen. Coach Weiss called me up. So I walk in. He goes, Ryan, so what's this between the Islams and the Muslims? And I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> and he's like, tell me about the Islams and the Muslims. So, you know, we talked. And, and how, I mean, how many of us as leaders have challenging conversations, are willing to dig deep, are willing to reach out to somebody who's different than us, that we you know, uh, not have control over, but that we, you know, we're the boss of. How many of us do that? And and leaving, you know, he said, hey, I'm going to make sure that, you know, our, our, you know, we are ND and that we, you know, we're going to let our community know about you and about what Islam and Muslims are. And, and that's because we need more people like you talking about it. And I just left there like, what the hell just happened? I'm at the, yeah. you know, greatest Catholic university and this coach who's got three Super Bowl rings of the Patriots asked me about my life. I mean, and that's, that was so much of my experience uh, at Notre Dame being Muslim. So how would it, if it did, affect your practices and your games? Uh, obviously, maybe let's just start with Ramadan because that's the most notable. Uh, can you explain it and what's expected of you during it for maybe people who don't know the specifics? 
Yeah, so Ramadan is a month um, of 30 days where, as Muslims, you just go back to your priorities. If you haven't been praying five times a day, you try and make sure you do. You try and serve the poor, give to the needy, be a part of your community. And one part of that, uh, returning to priorities, is also fasting during the daylight hours. And lots of people actually gain weight during Ramadan. I don't know, Sarah, if you've ever been to an iftar. There are probably a bunch on, on Michigan's campus, but... Man, Muslims, one thing Muslims do do is we eat, okay? And uh, when that sun goes down, there's, there's parties every night to share food with your neighbors and loved ones. And, um, and that just really gave me a deep appreciation. Now, I didn't fast during, um, during my career. You know, the, the people, mother Muslim teammates I had, I only had, you know, I only had one year in the NFL, my 10 years, where I didn't have a Muslim teammate. But Hussein Abdullah and um, Hamza Abdullah, they, they did fast during Ramadan. And uh, if you didn't fast, you could give you know, meals to the needy, to the poor. So I would, I would find the local, you know, whatever team I was on, I'd find the local shelter and we'd, we'd give some food during that month. And since retiring, it's been a, a great experience to just be a part of the community and, and go back to your roots. So, you know, you immediately, obviously you're, you're, you're converting it in eighth grade. So all of your football experiences involved you playing and training while fasting um, how difficult was it for you to keep that up? Were there moments where you weren't able to, and, and then you tried to make up for it in other ways, like you mentioned with, you know, giving to the less fortunate or something if your own fasts weren't able to be completed? Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, when I became Muslim, I got tricked because, uh, you know, sunset in the winter is a lot earlier. So <laughs> I would stop my workouts in high school, you know, and, and then eat and then finish my workout. Well, like this year, you know, sunset, you know, sunrise was from, 4:58 a.m. to 8:14 p.m. I mean that's a oh, big difference, you know. What I'm saying? So, <laughs> um, but but yeah, I mean you know the big thing too, and and you know there's a, in every faith there are varying you know degrees of importance, but you know uh, the school of thought that I've ascribed to is you know you don't your faith should not be a hardship for you. So if it's between me creating livelihood for my family, my wife and three kids, like. Hey, you know, if it's going to jeopardize that, don't do that. Make that up another time, you know. And so there'll be different things I did to make it up. But I'll tell you something, you know, going through a training camp, especially in the NFL, uh, you know, you really start to learn what you do and don't need because of some of those spiritual experiences I had. So, you know, to my friends, like, hey, you're not going to hear from me for six weeks. Hey, you know, later on in my career, telling family to stop coming in on a Friday night before a Sunday game because, hey, I've got to sacrifice that time with you so that I can be a better football player. And you know what? If you really want that time, stay till Monday. Well, 90% of the people didn't stay till Monday because they had work. You know what I'm saying? So it was just a great it, – It's it's been a great constant for me, especially in a world uh, in the NFL and, and football where there's so much uncertainty and inconsistency uh, both on the field and off. And it's really been able, you know, been a great way for me to give thanks and be appreciative in the moments that I've been able to, to earn and participate in through my, throughout my career. Time for a quick break. And then more That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Week one is in the books, but DraftKings isn't finished celebrating with some huge fantasy football contests. For week two of the football season, DraftKings, the leader in one-day fantasy football, is giving new users a free shot at over $1.5 million in prizes with your first deposit when you put in code SPAIN during sign-up. Draft your lineup and feel the sweat like never before. Every run, throw, and catch means more with the DraftKings lineup on the line. It's simple. Just draft your lineup, stand or the salary cap, and see how your team stacks up against the competition. 
Plus, all new and existing users can get a deposit bonus up to 500 bucks. That's some extra cash to play with this football season. Nothing adds to the sweat of watching the game quite like having a shot at over one and a half million in prizes. Download the DraftKings apps now and use code SPAIN. For a limited time, both new and existing users can get a deposit bonus up to 500 bucks. New users, don't forget to enter my code SPAIN to get a free shot at over $100.5 million in prizes with your first deposit. That's code SPAIN, only at DraftKings. Minimum $5 deposit required. Deposit bonus requires a 25 times playthrough. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for details. That's what she said. So you're at uh, Notre Dame. You're double majoring. So uh, tell me why you were, you know, compelled to challenge yourself so much academically while playing, especially if you had a feeling you might be playing at the next level. You know, I, I didn't think I, I loved Notre Dame because it gave me the chance to compete on the field as well as off. And and I almost went to Miami. You know, Larry Coker was smart, brought a Minnesota kid down uh, to Miami in late November. And uh, never seen a beach before, never had a steak before. And my, do they have beaches and steaks in Miami, right? And uh, and Stanford gave me a great opportunity to compete in the classroom, but not on the field as much. And Notre Dame was really the best of both worlds, so I wanted that. I don't like wasting my time. And my grandfather made it apparent, you know, abundantly clear. He was one of the first African Americans to go through the uh, accelerated MBA course at Harvard. I mean, he made it abundantly clear that if I did not make the most of my time at Notre Dame that I was, you know, being lazy and that I would, I would not, you know, match the opportunity, uh, with, with my ability. And so I really wanted to do that. So I just went to my, um, you know, counselor said, Hey, I want to get a degree in economics. Cause for me, that was the money side of it, right? Like if I go to the NFL, I want to know how to handle money. And it's been right. a big thing for me, financial literacy. Cause my parents weren't good at money. You know, a lot of people aren't good at money. And so that was the economic side. And then I thought, well, maybe, you know, law school or, or politics or something. I'd been on a couple of campaigns and staffs of uh, Minnesota senators and mayors. So I was like, hey, you know, do that. I want to do these two things. What do I got to do? I don't want to take any basket weaving. Now, I did take an <laughs> intro to Islam class my senior year, and I am proud of that to this day. But, uh, but you know, I mean, I, I wanted to get after it. And I wanted to make the most of it. I wanted to learn. And, and I wanted to be challenged off the field. So I got my dual degree in three and a half years so I could rock and go down to train for the NFL if that was to be my future. Wait a minute. Let's go back. So when you were in high school or even maybe younger, you worked on some campaigns back in Minnesota? Yeah. So Senator Mark, eventually Senator Mark Dayton worked on his, uh, worked on his Senate campaign and then later his staff. Uh, There's another mayor, uh, Mayor Kelly of St. Paul, Minnesota, who's campaign I worked on and um, and you know those are eye-opening experiences on how much change you can make you know uh, politically and I just you know again, wanted to be a part of my community so I wanted to learn more about that and have fascinating How'd you get into classes that, especially at that age you know I don't know I just that's something I thought well one it was a it was a good paying summer job those campaign jobs are great summer jobs for anybody right. <laughs> who's in high school you know they, they'll pay they'll pay a lot for a kid to go ringing doorbells and stuff, you know, um, and, and showing up at campaign, you know, rallies or, you know, um, parades and throwing candy out. So that was a, it was a good summer job. And, uh, and then, you know, meeting the people, you know, Senator Mark Dayton was really a nice guy. I mean, he's a, you know, a multimillionaire and he knows my name and still congratulated me after we won the Super Bowl And when I got to the NFL and, and so it was those relationships, and uh, and it was so you know. And then and then he won, and he was like, "Hey, do you want to be a part of the 
you know, next summer, do you want to be a part of the staff? Heck yeah. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll lick some envelopes and, yeah. and go to some dinners and stuff. So, uh, so really got to learn, you know, learn that, that, that kind of world uh, at a young age. Okay. So this might be a little off the wall, but I mean, you sound like such a try hard's the wrong word because that has like negativity associated with it. But it sounds like at every step, especially growing up, you were determined to do the best thing, the thing that people would want you to do, uh, the thing that would make your father and your grandfather and everybody else proud. How much pressure was there there? Was that all done out of just your own ambition or were there moments where it felt like the expectation for you to do and say the right thing all the time was sort of a lot? You know, it's a great question, but, you know, I just think about one of my favorite verses in, in, in hip-hop is by Jay-Z, you know, go further, go farther. If that's not why we're here, then if not, then why bother? You know, it's mm. like, if we're going to be at Notre Dame, I'm going to be at Notre Dame. If I'm going to go to college, I'm going to go to – if I'm going to play football, I'm not playing football. I'm I'm kicking your ass, and I'm ripping your heart out. <laughs> and so for me, especially learning that side of me at yeah, uh, through football, well, I'm not going to turn that off. I'm not going to take every detail and inch and ounce of information on the football field and then come off the field and just let some kid next to me or some teacher not give me, you know, that same opportunity. I'm not going to let those margins go when I get in the classroom, you know. And, and I took a lot of pride in being an African-American male at Notre Dame and kids looking at me thinking, hey, mate, you know, He's just here because he's an athlete. No, I'm here because I'm willing to do the work necessary, learn, and and I want to make a difference. And so for me, it was always, if we're going to do something, let's do it. There's no, you know, the stairs aren't the way into the pool. You know what I'm saying? Like, let's get in this thing (laughs) and let's try and break break the diving board on the way in with a big old jump. So you're playing at Notre Dame. You uh, you start all four years. Uh, was it clear to you that the NFL was going to happen, or was there still trepidation as you're entering the draft and hoping to be to be picked? You know, there was a moment in my junior year. I had no idea because I got called into Coach Weiss's office after his first year, and he goes, "Ryan, I know you're thinking about going to the NFL, and here's what my scouts and friends thought." And so he starts talking to me, and I'm going, "Dude." I wasn't thinking about going to the NFL. Like, who, you know what I'm saying? I was, I was like, you know, I was in school and I was, you know, I was loving college. And I was like, ah, uh, okay. He's like, so this is the information. You let me know what you want to do. And I was like, ah. Uh, and I left. I'm like, oh, my God. I might go to the NFL, you know. And, and, I, and I watched one of the clips, and it was all these different clips from my game that, you know, one of the scouts he knew had given him. And I was like, oh, my God. Is the NFL watching me right now? <laughs> and that was like, I was. I still remember in that hallway, like, what the hell is happening, you know? There's your lesson again, um, right? Sometimes people recognize you before you recognize them. Yeah. and I was They're, just they're like, watching you. Okay, they're looking just, for you. You don't even have it on your radar. No concept, you know, just just no concept. And I was like, okay, this is this is cool. This is cool. I can, I can handle this, you know, and like my walk changed, you know, and then, uh, but unfortunately, then I got into – you know, it was my first of what would be three back surgeries and nine total surgeries. And so I was so focused on just getting healthy and doing that. Um, but that's a moment I'll always love because I just, I didn't. You know, I mean, I really wanted, I mean, I knew that was a possibility. Um, but I didn't think it was real. You know what I mean? Like, it's possible that you win the lottery, Sarah. And <laughs> when it really happens, you'd be like, oh, okay, this is really happening. And that was kind of those mo- that moment 
that I was in leaving Charlie Weiss's office after my junior year. And I was like, oh, my God, he thought I was going to leave this year? Bro, I ain't going nowhere, you know. So <laughs> called him later that day and uh, and told him the, the good news that I would stay for my senior season uh, after much, much thought, of course, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so let's talk about the draft because I'm kind of fascinated by the idea of obviously you know the teams that bring you in for a workout or that come to your to your pro day. You know the teams that are rumored by various ESPN and other media network gas bags as ones who might be interested or might need you. Um, but how much when you're when you're sitting on draft night are you? Do you have places in mind that you would like to be? Because I'm sure it's very easy to just say, oh, I would be so thankful to just be picked. But, I mean, you got to be thinking about where you'd want to play, right? Yeah, I mean, and more for me, I was thinking where I don't want to play. I was literally just, please not Buffalo, please not Buffalo, please not Buffalo. You know what I mean? And, and by the time you get to that oh, draft, poor piece, so much is already done. I know, right? I feel bad for them. But if they're Montreal or Toronto, it might be different, you know. But <laughs> Buffalo uh, is a different place, and I didn't want stuff. to go there. You can go bad places if you win stuff. It's just it's yeah, the combination. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and they say they invented the chicken wing, which is ridiculous. Can we just all agree on that? There's no chance that Buffalo, New York, invented the chicken wing. But we digress, right? But, you know, yeah. pe- what people forget is that that part of the – like that draft, that's the end. That is like after NFL teams checked my back and I had 19 MRIs at the combine. Mm. That's after I had multiple teams question me about do I love football because I had a two-week – internship in between summer sessions because I wanted to learn about money. I had an internship with a wealth management company. I mean, it's like, you know, I had to have those conversations. I had to train. I had to redo my bench press um, after the combine twice and travel. So I knew the Chiefs were interested, the Giants, and my coach. Now, the Broncos didn't speak to me directly, but my agent at the time, and may rest in peace, Eugene Parker, um, he said, you know, hey, Ryan, I think Denver might do something. They've got a lot of picks. And so that night of the draft, and this was that my year was the year where the first round went like three hours. Um, I was that day. I was just so excited to find out where my life went and how many times do we know that? How many times are we in those situations where I could be in green Bay? I could be in Florida. I could be in California. I could be in Texas. And then when Denver picked me, you know, um, I just had no concept about Denver. I didn't even think about it. I don't even know the city. The first time I ever saw the city was when I got here, after getting picked, and uh, and what an awesome surprise Denver has been, and and you know it's where I met my wife, and it's where I live to this day, and and where we won the Super Bowl, and and I just and I couldn't have been more fortunate to come here, get fired from here, and then come back and win a Super Bowl. It's just been Denver's a magical place in my life, and it's not Buffalo. <laughs> <laughs> um, I believe you started your NFL career uh, protecting one Jay Cutler. Uh, as a Bears yeah. fan, I have intimate knowledge. Well, not intimate, but uh, unfortunately, uh, a lot of knowledge about Jay Cutler. But back with the Broncos was obviously some of his best playing time and uh, when he was most successful. Um, talk to me about just interacting with and being a teammate with Jay Cutler. He's so mercurial. He can be hilarious and then be a guy who you feel like he wants to punch everyone in the face. Jay Cutler was the most thoughtful and engaging teammate I ever had, and really? especially at that quarterback position. He was the best. The first suit I ever got in the NFL was because Jay Cutler got all the offensive linemen custom suits. Uh, he engaged with us, took us to baseball games, laughed with us, and in the huddle, he was awesome. We were playing San Diego in 2008, 
and we were down we were down six, we were down seven going into this final drive and he gets in the huddle and he goes, Hey boys, when we score we're going for two. Here we go. And it was just <laughs> kinda like, Wow, man, this guy is awesome. And when when Josh McDaniels came to Denver, it really just blew everybody like there was just so it was so weird what happened. You know, you have a quarterback, we had the one of the top offenses in the NFL, and then all of a sudden you get a coach in here who's lying about trading your your you know your leader your quarterback yeah. and and then ends up trading him and and I love Kyle Orton Kyle Orton's a great dude as well um, but Jay Cutler was as good of a quarterback and I, I was fortunate to play with some great ones of course Peyton Ben Roethlisberger and Jay Cutler's right up there in terms of his ability to be a leader and his arm talent I mean an unbelievable arm talent athleticism fun awesome off the field so engaging brought us along. And uh, and even when we were, you know, I was playing with the, uh, another team, we played the Bears. Came there and I saw them, wor- wor- you know, warming up. And you know, quarterbacks are particular before the game. And so I was like, right, I'm gonna do my thing. And then it was about five minutes later, I hear I hear I heard this voice, Hey man, good to see you again. And he's and I turn around, Jay had stopped his whole workout mm. to come over. And he's, you know, his receivers are panting, waiting for him to come back at Soldier Field. And we just talk, and we talk about fatherhood. I'm like, hey, man, you screwed me. You didn't tell me fatherhood was so tough. He goes, what? <laughs> you know, he's, he's like, what were we thinking, you know? So that's yeah. when people say Jay Cutler, you know, that's what Jay Cutler is. Back with more That's What She Said with Sarah Spain in just a minute. Hiring can be a slow process. Cafe Altura's COO, Dylan Miskowitz, needed to hire a director of coffee for his organic coffee company, but he was having trouble finding qualified applicants. So he switched to ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Its technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. So you get qualified candidates fast. Dylan posted his job on ZipRecruiter and said he was impressed by how quickly he had great candidates apply. He also used ZipRecruiter's candidate rating feature to filter his applicants so he could focus on the most relevant ones. And that's how Dylan found his new director of coffee in just a few days. With results like that, it's no wonder four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. Try ZipRecruiter for free at our web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash said. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash S-A-I-D. ZipRecruiter.com slash said. ZipRecruiter, smartest way to hire. That's what she said. So you're with the Broncos for a couple of years, um, with Cutler, with Orton, a uh, couple of years on just practice squad, so 2011-2012, with the Eagles and then back with the Broncos. Um, what was it like for you to kind of go from, from you know, being a contributor to, to not being on a full-time roster? And did you did you have any thought at the time that that might be the end for you? Oh, 100%. You know, I wasn't ever on practice squad, but when I went, when I left the Broncos, um, I went to the Philadelphia Eagles and, 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 um, that was a tough time. That was right in between the – that was that year where there was a bargaining agreement and, a, and the salary cap was lowered like $15 million, so everybody's taking one-year deal. So I went to Philadelphia, and a week into camp there, and this is when we had the dream team, Michael Vick, you know, Sean McCoy. We had unbelievable defense. And, uh, and in training camp, my back went out, and I had to have my third back surgery, and mm. I did think it was over. And that was, no doubt, the toughest time in my life. And I'm fortunate that I had great friends that we've already talked about that, you know, brought me out and said, hey, man, we're going to go watch the Monday Night Football game and, and had some real conversations with me about, hey, you know, you're not looking good. What's going on? And so I thought it was over. I was out of football. And then that same year, uh, Denver called me back to come back and, 
And so I ended ended started January with the Broncos, went into camp with them, and then I was still, you know, I felt I was a little arrogant. And this is, you know, one of the most embarrassing times of my career. But I was arrogant and unwilling when Coach Fox came in. And guess what happened to me? They fired me, you know. And uh, never been more humiliated in my life. How do I tell my wife in our first year of marriage that I lost my job because I was arrogant? How do I tell my friends who are coming to town for the game in 10 days uh, that I wasn't going to have tickets? And, you know, fortunately for me, I just said, you know what? I can be a good husband without being a Denver Bronco. I can make sure I never lose my job again because uh, I'm unwilling to work. And the very next morning, Gary Kubiak gave me a call. He was with the Houston Texans. Went and played there for two years with him. Uh, went and played with the Chiefs. Uh, started 15 games, played in 16. And after that season, they said, Ryan, we don't think you got any football left. And, uh, and then I got a call that offseason again from that same guy, Gary Kubiak, but this time he was back with the Broncos. He said, hey, Ryan, I need you. I need you to come help us win a championship. I need you to show these young guys how to work. And I said, I can do that, Coach. And so I came back to Denver, had that magical Super Bowl 50 season, and then went to play for Pittsburgh after. And, uh, and those times were tough. And after my third back surgery, I thought it was over. And uh, I just kept working, kept rehabbing, and, uh, and was preparing for every opportunity that came. Let's talk about that Super Bowl season. I'm always curious to talk to athletes because – I think more so in baseball where the season is so long and it's pretty clear before it starts whether you've got a shot at all, right? I mean, it's really rare in baseball for a team to be expected to be one of the worst and to do anything. Football's a little bit different. There's more parity. There's anything can happen. And there's not that many games. So you're waiting all off season to get a chance to get out there and hit some people. And there's an excitement and, and there's really no tanking in football. You're always going to be going 100%. But how much when you start a season do you look around at the pieces that you have and say, okay, this is a season that something good could happen this feels special um or how much of it is like you know midway through after a couple wins you look around and, and that's when you start to get it you know that is a phenomenal question and and i'm so grateful i know the answer and the truth is is you believe the whole time but there are things that happen we were in training camp like you said you walk in and my you know i walk in and i, I played with peyton you know in training camp before i'm like okay there's Peyton, okay, you know, there's Damaris Thomas, Emmanuel Sanders, you know, uh, whoa, Vaughn Miller and DeMarcus Ware, okay, all right, you know, and <laughs> T.J. Ward and, uh, and, and you know, Keep Tlaib, Chris Harris, okay, what's up, boys, hey, good to see you again, okay, whoa, we got a squad, you know what I'm saying, and, but the other thing was, we were such a veteran team, and we were the best team I'd ever been on, and, and being there, we had Shannon Sharp come and talk to us, the, before camp even you know broke, and he said, "Hey, if you have, if you're not here to win a Super Bowl, get the bleep out." And that was the first team that I'd ever been on that had the Super Bowl as a goal. A lot of teams just want to win their division, go to the playoffs, but hey, get the bleep out. And now, and and us veterans were really like, "Yeah, I mean, we're going to be doing extra work. You're going to stay here and do extra work. It, the details matter because we'd all had we'd all had lost before. You know, Demarcus Ware hadn't won a Super Bowl. Peyton had only won one of the two he'd been to, and his brother had two Super Bowl rings. You know, can't go to that Thanksgiving dinner. And, and you know, <laughs> so so many of us were bought in to just doing everything it would take. And different things did happen. We beat the brakes off the uh, Green Bay Packers when they came to Denver. That was a whoa moment, you know. we And strangely enough, we had an overtime win in uh, um, Cleveland, and that was like, okay, we're going to do this. And we, we had so much fun together. We laughed together. You know, DeMarcus Ware, one of the most selfless teammates I've ever had, you know, would come up to me in, a, in any given week, hey, you're going against this guy. You know, he gave me a great tip against 
uh, James Harrison that really helped me in the game. He'd tell me, hey, you're, you're tipping your, your stance off here, so just help me. And he didn't have to do that. And that's how we were. We laughed together. We rode the buses together. We paid the dues. And, man, and the Super Bowl was kind of – that was – we believed we would win, but we, but we didn't know. And that was just like, okay, yeah, that was cool. But remember that time on the bus? <laughs> remember this? And, and I'll tell you, you know, being the last team to meet Obama, that was awesome for me. So it was just so much fun. And we believed from an early point. And that resolve, you saw that in Super Bowl 50. And that's why we beat a, a team who only had one loss that year in the Carolina Panthers. We beat the Brakes off them by 14 points. That was a fun one. I was at that Super Bowl, and I was on the field afterwards uh, was with everybody celebrating. And there was this very special feeling of, you know, I think you all probably knew that that was the last ride for Peyton um, you know, and, 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 and that you had done some magical things in, in order to win in the last game of his career because he was no longer really himself. Um, it's gotta be so special. Uh, were you, did you have kids by that point? I did, but I kept their ass at home. $1,800 for those kids to get a ticket. Man, I love my kids. Forget that. Uh, we put it in the Disney World account. No I mean, way. The NFL too. No way. Heck yeah. Just past their bedtime. You know they're traveling. No, oh, they're gonna wake that. up and be. Remember? They're gonna. They're gonna grow up and be so mad at you. Oh, let them. Let them be mad. You know, <laughs> we don't. I did. I took them on the. I took them on the uh, parade though, and that was awesome. You know, and the team was like, "Hey, you can't have your families." And I'm like, and, you know, the whole year we've been breaking rules. Yeah, you know, we're supposed. We're supposed to get beat by 14 points to the Carolina Panthers. Steph Curry's over there banging that drum. Okay. You know, okay, we can't have our family on the on the fire trucks. All right, first of all, give me the firefighter hat, and my kids are coming on this truck. Okay, so, <laughs> so I, I helped them out that way, and it was free. So I plus thirty six hundred dollars, right? So, uh, but it was you know it was really great. My wife uh, had my wife come out, and my my parents, and, and that same group of friends from high school that I'd known and grown with, and just to celebrate with each other just making it through back surgeries, you know, doubts. I mean, that time we talked about, I took the LSAT. I was out of the NFL for so long. I was out of the NFL for like four years, studied for, and then took the LSAT, you know. And, wow. And just to have won, you know, and, and when you win the Super Bowl, everything you believe about yourself comes true for other people. I wear that ring. You know I know how to work hard. You know I know how to clean diamonds. You know what I'm saying? You know I know how to work for something. You know I, I know how to be a great teammate. And and that moment is something I'll I'll be forever grateful for. A lot of greats in the game never have that moment. You know, I hung it, I I dangle it over Mike Munchak's head the year we played together when I was at uh, the Steelers. So, yeah, you may have that nice you know Hall of Fame ring, but look at this thing. You got one of these, you know. And and so just the fun and joy of of being a champion in the NFL is something I will be grateful for for the rest of my life. So you. Finish up your career with the Steelers. At what point, or, or or maybe were you told by others that you were done, that that was it for you? You know, after the Super Bowl year, it was basically tough for another season. I mean, one, uh, you know, the parties go for a while. You know, what I'm saying? <laughs> so so like I would be leaving, I would be leaving, you know, Steelers OTAs to go to the White House and then come back and then go back to Denver for the ring ceremony and come back and. Um, not to mention what a guy's had in between. Uh, but, you know, one of the things people do not understand about the Super Bowl, that's week 24 when you put your hands on that cold Lombardi steel. It's week 24. And those playoff games, every playoff game is, you know, the, the, we, we got the first round by, but that divisional round, that feels like two games. That AFC championship round, I mean, there are people I'm surprised who are not dead from the hits that they received, the intensity of that game. 
unbelievable um, playing in that game. And then going to the Super Bowl, I got hit some of the hardest in my entire life as a football player just in that game multiple times. So physically, I was just like, man, this is rough. And, you know, callousing your forehead again with your helmet, you know, going through those sprains and, and, and bumps that happen in training camp. Um, but, you know, I had five surgeries to save my left leg below my lower knee and uh, below my knee. And I was come, came home and I said to my wife, you know, I didn't think about getting injured since the last surgery. And she said, I think about it every day. Huh. And I was sitting there with my wife and kids and I was like, that's it. That's done. Won a Super Bowl, played 10 years, got vested, was smart with my money. You know, we're going to go. We're going to do this thing I heard about broadcasting. You know, I like to show PTI and around the horn. Let's just go check this stuff out. And uh, got selected by the NFL to do their broadcasting boot camp and went to Notre Dame and got some great opportunities and, and came back to Denver, uh, got some other great ones, and, and have really uh, been able to build a career after my original career. And, and the free food is so good. You, you people <laughs> didn't tell me about the free food. I might have left I, earlier, you know. But I feel like you're taking the- your fight. I feel like you're taking your financial intelligence too far. You know, you're skimping on the kids <laughs> going to the game. You're talking about the free food. You played 10 years in the NFL. You, you could buy your own crappy uh, meals because I'll tell you, the media food's not that good. I don't know what you're eating. Yeah. Maybe it's better at Notre hey, Dame. Man. I'll never be so rich. I don't appreciate free food. That's I let, true. I let the other people go first. I do take my time. <laughs> anyway, yeah, if I, I saw you, what, you in though, line, you know, I might be worried there'd be none left. Yeah, trust. And they, that's what they do. I'll stand up to go to the, the, the meal at the you know Broncos press box. I'll, you know, hey, hold on, right? you know, we're going in there. Let me get my seconds. You know, say, hey, please do. <laughs> But and I'll tell you, though, when you start, you know, when each person you love and is going to be around you costs $1,800 out of your pocket, you start looking <laughs> at them like, hey, man, do I really love you? I mean, when did you spend $1,800 for me? So my uncles are still pissed I didn't buy them tickets. And I'm like, yeah, there's six of y'all. That's ten grand. That's, that's you know, thirty grand untaxed. You know? So, yeah, oh y'all can gosh. watch it at home. That economics degree. Uh, hey, hey, speaking of preserve. eating, you know, one of the one of the most interesting things to watch is linemen post-career. So, like you said, you at times got all the way up to, what, 320 in your career? Yeah. How much do you weigh now? Yeah. 265, yeah. What's the so, first thing uh, that goes? Just, like, what do, you, what do you stop doing to try to keep all the weight on? Did you, during your career, need to be the guy who sits and forces food because you need to keep it up? Yeah, I did. You know, I did. So, the first thing that went was free breakfast every day. You know, you go, <laughs> you go to the NFL, you get pancakes, eggs, you know, beef bacon, turkey bacon, you know, avocado slices, yogurt, what you know, granola. I mean, you're eating all day. Um, and then part of it, too, is just every five pounds of weight we lose is 50 pounds of pressure off of our joints. So for me, with my back surgeries, toe surgery, leg surgeries, it's like, all right, let's get, let's get this weight down so I can be a father, so I can have energy for my wife and kids every day. And, and I'd stop eating late stopped eating, you know, total crap, you know, uh, all the time because I wasn't working out all the time. And, and I've been big on, you know, hot yoga and, and spin cycling and, uh, and just trying to make conscious decisions about food that I make. And, uh, and that's been a big difference. Tell me about Mindset for Mastery. This is the book that you wrote. It came out last year, I think. Um, what made you want to be an author and what made you want to, uh, you know, tell other people how to achieve the things they're trying to get after? You know, like I mentioned, you know, uh, winning the Super Bowl is just this moment I want everybody to have in their life. And there are not enough voices to encourage people. 
I mean, the Kansas City Chiefs told me the year before I won the Super Bowl that I had no football left. You know how happy I am when I see Coach Andy Heck and I see <laughs> Coach Reed on the, um, and I wear my ring, and I'm like, hey, boys, how are you doing? You know, good to see you. And everywhere, for everyone. I mean, Sarah, you could tell me for an hour the times that people doubted you, and you had to choose your mindset. You had to choose this is not going to be the end of my career. This is not going to be the way people are going to respect me. This is not going to be the way – that I you know that that I turn around and go home, and especially with athletes, I get it all the time. Even a month ago, someone said, "Hey, Ryan, you know, well, you were always good at sports, Ryan." Uh, no, I got knocked <laughs> out of my cleat in college. I didn't know how to hit when I started, and there's failure in every athletic career. There's failure in every NFL game. So being able to talk about failure, something we talk about less than sex. Let's talk about failure. And here's how I failed, and here are the tools that I made, did to work my way out of it, to believe in myself when no one else would, to create my mindset, to create my reality and ultimate dreams, to visualize my success. What does your success look like? Who's around you? Who's not around you? How much money are you saving? You know what I'm saying? But these are all things that I, I love to talk about and, and talk about with people and encourage people to go for that promotion, to go for that dream. Okay, you, you missed seven job interviews. Well, that eighth one might be the one. I failed eight years to win the Super Bowl. The ninth year we did. Was, was I a failure before, or was I just working to be great? And so really being a voice of encouragement so people can have that moment in their life is important to me because I've, I've been able to experience that. I want that for my wife and children. I want that for the community I live in in Denver, and I want that for anyone who's willing to pick up a book and has a, is willing to go after and earn their dream. Speaking of failure, that's one of the questions in the next segment. Before we let you go, you have to do the thing that everybody does but nobody expects. Didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. That's right, the ten questions everybody gets and nobody expects. Number one, your Desert Island album. You can only have one. Oh, man. I'm going to go uh, Illmatic by Nas. Illmatic nice. by Nas. Nice. Uh, number two, habit or quality you think has contributed most to your success? Ooh. Uh, recognizing distractions. Who's a distraction? What's a distraction? When are things a distraction? You know, it's not important for me to get somebody Super Bowl tickets that I haven't talked to for five years. You're a distraction. Talk to you later. Interesting. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, number three, what would you consider your biggest failure? Wow. Um probably getting fired from the Broncos, not, not being willing to learn. And I'm so grateful for that because it taught me to be, to be willing and to learn, to ask questions, and to work harder than I thought I was capable of. Number four, have you ever been in a fist fight? Yeah, all the time. Uh, the <laughs> NFL, it's one of the, that, was, that was one of the biggest adjustments for me going into broadcasting is being around the game of football. When someone pisses you off, you can't punch them in the face. You know what I mean? If you're a habitual <laughs> line stepper, in the NFL, we're swinging, and and you know why. And you know what, you know, Coach Wise said, hey, you don't fight to win. Sometimes you just got to fight. So uh, yeah, uh, even up to my final year uh, with the Steelers, you know, there's every year there being fights. And I don't know if it was because I went to Notre Dame or or what, but I was tested, and you will be tested if you're in the NFL every season. So them fists will come out at some point in training camp. A lot of fist fights outside the game of football, or no? No, I try and you know I'm 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 six uh, six five three hundred and black man. I'm getting shot and or arrested if I fight somebody <laughs> off the street. So I was yeah, and you can rarely find someone to fight do. that's your own size too. <laughs> like it's not going to look right. like a fair fight. 
Uh, number five, yeah. if you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be? Man, no one. No one. I mean, I miss the, 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 my wife and kids. Just to see how it is? For a day? Yeah. Maybe Richard Branson. Is that the guy from Virgin? Is that the yeah, guy from yeah, Virgin? yeah. It's always like water Maybe skiing with or, topless chicks. Yeah, or Jeff Bezos. I mean, just to have a billion for a day, sure. You know, <laughs> That would be nice. What I'd, what I'd really do with it instead of the lies I tell myself I'd do with it, you know? Yeah, exactly. Uh, number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? When I got fired from the Broncos. That was so unexpected. And so, like, oh, my God, what did I do? You know, I didn't take this seriously. I didn't take advantage of this. And then to come back and to see um, John Elway and those guys again at the Broncos and be like, hey, guys, thanks for that opportunity to come back. And they, they kind of looked at me like, we fired you like two years ago. You're happy to be back? You know what I'm saying? And, yeah. And I was because I was a different player. And uh, and I was so for, so thankful for that, that awakening moment that, unfortunately, many people don't get to have. What did you say to your wife and what did she say to you when you went home to say, you know, we just got married, I lost my job? Oh, man. I just came in and uh, and she knew right away something was wrong. You know, I, yeah, I, mean, I had tears in my eyes driving away. My hands were shaking the entire car ride home. And uh, she's like, what happened? I'm like, I uh, I got fired. And she, and she was kind of new to this whole, like, NFL world. She's like, what does that mean in the NFL, fired? You know, she didn't know if it was benched or, like, well – I'm not a Bronco anymore. And she was kind of like, okay. And uh, so she just kind of gave me space. And, you know, I, I bought Panda Express on the way home to eat my feelings with that orange chicken. So I ate my <laughs> orange chicken, and, and we kind of moved on from there. And you only had to wait a day, which is nice. Uh, yeah, and I, and I didn't think about it, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty crazy. Most people don't get that quick of a, of a response the day after they get fired. Um, right. Number seven, think about yourself you'd most like to improve. Um, slowing down, slowing down, you know, for me, I try and find opportunities everywhere and just not caring about saving five minutes or, um, you know, being present. So that's the number one thing I want to change. I'm working to change is just being more present, planning less, do less, do less. (laughs) That's good. Number eight, if you could be commissioner of life for a day, what one rule would you enforce that all of society would have to adhere to? Everyone has to serve. You have to serve for charity. Go serve in a place different than you. Serve someone different than you. And every time you serve, you learn more than the person you're serving. So I would require service of all of us so that we all understand how lucky we are, where we're at, and where we are needed. That's a great one. Number nine, what's the most scared you've ever been? Uh, either proposing to my wife or having our son, my first child. I was terrified of our first child. I was like, I don't know what it is to be a parent. I don't know what to expect. I don't have any milk. I don't know formula to use. Everybody's talking about organic formula, and I don't know what you, Sarah, but, you know, you have your first kid. Everybody gives you advice. So there's this, <laughs> you know, all this advice. So between proposing to my wife and uh, having our first child. Number 10, what three words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Man, um, professional, fun, engaging. Mm, those are good. And finally, if you had to suggest somebody that I have on this podcast, who do you think would be good to, for me to talk to? Ooh, um, Hussein Abdullah or Elliot Marshall. Hussein Abdullah is an epic story and then uh, NFL story and now runs his own Amazon shipping company, which is pretty cool. 
Um, uh, and then Elliot Marshall, a UFC fighter who had extreme anxiety and has found a way to fight through it. Uh, he's, uh, he's been an inspiration to many. And if you're looking for kind of like a story people don't know in the NFL, Cody Wallace, he's a guy who played nine years and started a pest control business after his NFL career and pretty funny story. And we called him the neighbor, but he's one of those guys that'll be nice to you and rip your heart out while you, you know, <laughs> while looking you in the eyes as you pass away. Awesome. Uh, those are all good suggestions. It was great talking to you, Ryan, and I will uh, I will listen for you on the uh, Notre Dame broadcast, and maybe I'll see you over there. Yeah, thank you so much, Sarah, and it's, it's been a joy to watch your career, and congrats on all your hard work. Thanks. That's so nice. That's what she said. Be sure to check out another great podcast in the Levitard and Friends Podcast Network, Marty Smith's America. This week, Marty discusses his debut as the host of SEC Nation. Plus, he was at a blimp last week. Because, you know, of course he was. Download and subscribe to Marty Smith's America right now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's what she said. It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I rant about something that bothers me, and I fix it. This week, having a cold when it should still be summer. I just had an amazing weekend in the Hamptons with about 13 of my best college friends, which is truly a remarkable thing that we're still friends after all these years. And more importantly, that we could get everyone to drop their kids and work and family and life to be together and connect in person. And it was amazing. But unfortunately, it was either, you know, the rosé, the 11 teen hours that I spent in the hot tub, or probably more likely the colds that two of the moms brought into the weekend that got me sick. And it's beautiful and sunny here. Summer started way late, and I need many more weeks of nice, warm weather and happy summer vibes. And even though it's technically almost fall, I feel like I just shouldn't be sick. It's not allowed. I had to turn my mic down to blow my nose like 18 times during my radio show last night. My wastebasket is just an overwhelming pile of Kleenex, and it's supposed to still be summer, at least in my head. One day if I snap, it's probably going to be about this. Why haven't we found a cure for colds yet? I mean, we're doing great, important work on a lot of things, and yet somehow the common cold is just a thing we all have to accept that we get several times a year. And NyQuil gives me night terror, so that's the solution, is like your nose stops running, but then you wake up and you've like murdered a bunch of people in your dreams. That seems like something we could fix, I think. I mean, maybe we should just stop work on like the sex robots and tackle runny noses. I feel like it'd be better for our society to not have colds than to have really lifelike sex robots. Okay. All right, I feel good about what we accomplished today. Colds suck, runny noses are annoying, summer should last forever, and we should stop prioritizing sex robots. There, I fixed it. Hey, if you like this show, you might like my nightly radio show, Spain and Company. It's on 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern every weeknight. And if you can't catch it live, you can find select segments posted to the Twitter feed at Spain and Company. If you have a dilemma for the commission to fix, tweet it to me at Sarah Spain, or you can always go find That's What She Said with Sarah Spain in the iTunes or podcast app. Subscribe to the podcast, rate it, review it, five stars, five stars, five stars. Leave your dilemma in your review, and maybe I'll fix it on a future podcast. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. Well, that's what she said. <laughs>